the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So, welcome to Good Shepherd Sunday. It's not only Mother's, Mother's Day, it's Good Shepherd Sunday, like every fourth Sunday of in Easter. Uh, which means you've heard a lot of sermons over your years, just looking around, about Good Shepherds. So we're going to start off with by inviting you to turn around and talking to your neighbours about what do you know about the Good Shepherd. So share your wisdom with each other. And I'll be back in a moment with my sermon. What is the Good Shepherd? What do you know? What do you know about the Good Shepherd? Don't be shy. We need him in our life. We need him in our life, alright? It's a good start. So, who is the Good Shepherd? Jesus. Jesus, okay, that's one answer. What else do you know about the Good Shepherd? Right. Okay, so that might include us. Yes. All right. Absolutely. So, uh, so I've talked about this in the past, but um, in a in a town, all the all the shepherds would bring their sheep into one big enclosure to be there at night if they were near the town and then the shepherds would go in in the morning and call their sheep by name and the sh- their sheep would follow their voice and wouldn't follow any of the other shepherds voices so that's a that's an everyday event you would hear that in towns across the middle east and we'll still hear that of, of shepherds calling their sheep by name and then leading them out to find good pasture anything else about shepherds Well, every uh, fourth Sunday in Easter, we hear, um, because it's Good Shepherd Sunday, we hear a reading from John 10. So last year, year B, well, in fact, next year, year A, we will hear verses 1 to 10. And last year, which was year B, we heard verses 11 to 18. So that's all the, the chunk of John where, he, where Jesus says, I am the Good Shepherd. And I am the gate to the sheepfold. So that's the Good Shepherd passage. And then this year we hear the verses we heard, which was 22 to 30, which is an entirely different story, um, but still has uh, this Good Shepherd connotation. The Good Shepherd tradition within the, the Bible, within the biblical tradition, is a very important one. And it starts with the psalm that we said, Psalm so there's a whole lot of things about Good Shepherd just in that psalm. So I was thinking you might kind of start quoting me the 23rd psalm. Because that's the bedrock, that's the foundation of the Good Shepherd tradition. And it used a common rural image to describe God's expectations of leaders. So there were good shepherds, good kings, and there were bad shepherds, bad kings. 
but it also described the nature of God. God is the good shepherd. So, yes, Jesus is the good shepherd, but ultimately, God is the good shepherd. That God the Father is the good shepherd. Jesus isn't the good shepherd just on his own. And within that tradition, there are a number of things. For example, in the 23rd Psalm, it talks about how the Good Shepherd will lead the sheep to good pastures and quiet waters. Sheep need quiet waters. The running waters aren't great for drinking out of quiet waters of what sheep need for drinking out of in the Middle East. So that's important. Which means the needs, the day-to-day needs of people are provided by the Good Shepherd. Which, has, which is good on one hand, but also has the flip side of what is provided is enough. So we are to be thankful and not always wanting more than what is provided, which is very difficult for us because the constant message of our society is that you want more, you deserve more. Our entire economy rests on that. We celebrate when our economy grows And it grows because people have wanted more. So, the Good Shepherd tradition says we shouldn't want more. What does that do to a capitalist economic system? Not good things. Uh, The Good Shepherd will honour the sheep. That's what the meal is about, honouring and blessing. Uh, The Good Shepherd will protect the sheep. The Good Shepherd will have compassion for the sheep. And the Good Shepherd will enter the wilderness and search for, search diligently for, find, gather, and bring back the lost sheep. So all of this is encapsulated, held within that Good Shepherd tradition. And that, the 23rd Psalm then gets reinterpreted and reused for a whole lot of different situations throughout the story of the people of God. So, for example, Jeremiah, the fall of Jerusalem, the fall of the southern kingdom. Jeremiah talks about the bad shepherds, the kings that led to this, but also God, the good shepherd, and what the hope eventually gets to the hope. Mostly it's just about bad shepherds. Uh, Ezekiel, after the fall, in the exile, talking about God, the good shepherd, and how God, the good shepherd, will search for and bring back the lost sheep. Zechariah talks about the lost shepherd in the time of the return from the exile. And as each of these people use that tradition, it intensifies, it develops. And the Gospel writers also placed Jesus within that tradition. So this isn't something that they made up just to apply to Jesus. This is a well-established tradition within Judaism uh, that that was used by the Gospel writers and by Jesus to describe, in part, what he was about. We could say that Jesus is the Good Shepherd incarnate, made flesh. We could also say that in Jesus we see God, the Good Shepherd, at work. So it's a different way of putting it. We say that Jesus is the Good Shepherd. In fact, I think Jesus would have disagreed with that. I think he would have said... In what I do, you see God, the Good Shepherd, at work. Which is a different way of phrasing it. And so each of the Gospel writers has a passage where they place Jesus in that Good Shepherd tradition. Mark 6, Matthew 18, Luke 15. Luke 15, with 
uh, the shepherd who goes out and finds the lost sheep, but also the woman who finds the lost coin. That is a good shepherd story, placing Jesus within the good shepherd tradition. John's use of the good shepherd tradition is a little bit different from the other gospel writers. And there are times when that tradition plays out in ways that we fail to see. For example, the good shepherd knows the sheep by name and calls them. The sheep know the voice of the good shepherd and follow only that voice. So in the resurrection story, when is it that Mary knows that it is Jesus? When he speaks and calls her by name. That is Jesus, the good shepherd. She hears his voice, hears her name and knows that it is Jesus. She recognises the voice. Nothing else fits, but that fits. That works. That's not an accident. A lot of commentators will say that is going back to that good shepherd statements. So, John also introduces this idea that Jesus is the good shepherd who will lay down his life for the sheep, who will pay the price so that we may be freed from all that enslaves the sheep, us. Now we, because we have had a thousand years of substitutionary atonement theology playing out, which is God cannot have us near us because we are bad, and God desires that we die, but instead Jesus comes and dies in our place, we read that as that kind of theology. But actually no one in the early church understood that phrase in that way. You've got to wait about a thousand years before that, that theology kind of comes to the fore. And the Greek that is used there is the Greek of paying a price like, I owe Peter money, so I pay him back that money. That's the Greek word at play here. It's not about sacrifice. It is simply about paying the debt. Or, I am a slave and I want to be freed. I pay the money so that I am no longer a slave. That's the Greek word that's at, that's at play here. It's about debts paid off being freed. It's a money transaction word. So what does that do in terms of atonement? Well, this is much more about what, what debts do people owe and what enslaves them. Well, sin and death. So who demands the payment? Now, we would normally say, because of the last thousand years, God. But actually, if you read the, the first theologians, they would have vehemently disagreed with that statement. There is nowhere... There is no concept of God, a loving God, who would hold that humanity owe God a debt and that they have to pay that debt. It's not God that needs to be paid off. It's the powers of this world, Satan, if we want to use that language. So Jesus pays our debt to the powers of this world so that we might be freed, that we might be liberated, so that we might be brought back and live the life with the Good Shepherd, as described in Psalm 23. Eternal life is the word that 
John describes this as. And we often see that as something that happens in the future. But John never talks about this as happening in the future. It's always the present tense. You will, you have eternal life now. So what does that eternal life look like? Well, living life with the Good Shepherd now. It's how we live our life now, freed from enslavement, freed from the debt to sin and death. So the Good Shepherd then gets used in a very interesting way by John. And this was a really important message for John's community because he was living in a community that was under intense pressure. They'd been thrown out of Judaism as heretics. So we keep forgetting that actually for the first 30, 40, 50 years, Christianity was simply a sect within Judaism. People understood them as Jews. Jews weren't super happy about that. And eventually... They were thrown out of the synagogues. They were seen as something separate. There were deep divisions within the Christian community about the place of Torah. So we can see that in Paul's writing. Nothing has changed. Still deep divisions. They were seen by Romans as atheists. They didn't believe in the Roman gods. Like we think, oh, well, we have the God. And so anyone who doesn't believe our God might be atheist. But actually... Early Christians were atheists. They didn't believe in the Roman gods. Therefore, they didn't believe in God. So they were accused of being atheists. And worse, they were accused of being treasonous. Why? Because the emperor was the son of God, the prince of peace, saviour of the world. In the titles, official And who did Christians believe was the Son of God, the Prince of Peace, the the Saviour of the world? A crucified insurgent from Galilee. They applied those imperial titles to that person. That's treasonous. So all those right-wing Christians that talk about how we should obey the powers of this world, just... Read some of the titles that are applied to Jesus. They are the imperial titles that the early church took from Caesar and applied to Jesus. We don't follow those powers. We follow this one. And all of that meant that that community was under incredible pressure. And so Jesus the Good Shepherd or Jesus living out, God the Good Shepherd was good news for them. But it also said... You have to listen to the voice of the risen Jesus. And when you do that, the Good Shepherd will bring you home, will protect you. But first you have to hear and follow. This passage and passages like it were passages of messages of hope and consolation and warning. John was asking of his original hearers and us What voices compete in our world for the voice of the Good Shepherd? How do you, how do we stop, take time to hear and respond to the voice of the Good Shepherd? I'll just pause for a moment with that question, those questions. What voices compete for our attention? And how do we take time to hear and respond to the voice of the Good Shepherd?
So just to go back to one of the comments made about the Good Shepherd, that we are Good Shepherds. Jesus finishes this week's reading by saying, My Father and I are one, which we often read as some kind of Trinitarian statement about Jesus being God. The problem is that when the New Testament has been written, the Trinitarian theology as we understand it didn't exist. Those people were still trying to work out the relationship between Jesus, who was called Son of God, and what that meant in terms of God the Father, and where the Holy Spirit fitted in that. We're still trying to work that out. There are huge divisions between the Western Church and the Eastern Church about that, about where the Holy Spirit fits into all of that. And so this is much less a statement about Jesus being God, and much more in the Greek a statement about in Jesus, we see God the Father, God the Good Shepherd at work. And we often stop there, don't we? As Patsy said, Jesus is the Good Shepherd. But last week we heard Peter, uh, Jesus say to Peter three times, Feed my lambs, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. What's he inviting Peter to be? A Good Shepherd. And in fact, he was inviting all of them to be good shepherds so that in them, people could look at them and see God the good shepherd at work. Today, we heard the amazing story of Tabitha Dorcas. It's an amazing story because there ain't that many stories about women in the Bible, to be honest. And she is the only woman in the New Testament who is described as disciple. Not even like the female version of disciple is applied to her. It's the only time in the New Testament that word is used. Not to Mary Magdalene, not to Mary and Martha, not to any of those followers of Jesus, just Tabitha, Dorcas. And even the fact that her name is in Greek and Aramaic gives us a clue about how extraordinary she is. Why does she need her name in Greek and Aramaic? Very few others in the New Testament get that. Well, maybe because she's at work in both the Greek-speaking and Aramaic-speaking communities. She is living out exactly where Paul thinks Christianity should go. There are no racial divides for her. There are no language divides. She's at work amongst the Aramaic speakers and the Greek speakers. Something that even the church in Jerusalem failed to do. The first deacons were appointed because the Greek-speaking followers were feeling a bit naffed off because the Aramaic-speaking followers, which included all the original disciples, were all gathering together and getting all the good stuff, and the Greek-speaking ones were left on the outer. So the ten deacons were appointed to look after them. Now... It says here that she made clothes, which sounds nice to us, kind of quaint, those of us, because we can just go down to the shops and buy our clothes. But Tabitha Dorcas lived in a world where you didn't buy clothes. There were nowhere to buy clothes, not for the normal people. The clothes you wore were made by you, which meant you had to have the resources to get the material to make the clothes. And if you live... 
in a hand-to-hand situation where you're not sure where your next meal is going to come from, where do you get the resources to make clothes? So these people don't have wardrobes. They have the clothes they stand in and their cloak. That's it. And when their clothes wear out, they're in trouble because they don't have any other means to get new clothes. So what she is doing is providing clothes for the poorest of the poor, the people who can't afford to make clothes for themselves. It's an astounding ministry of restoring dignity to people who are losing their dignity. So you can see why people are mourning when she dies. Now we might say of Tabitha, of Dorcas, that in her we can see God the Good Shepherd at work. And the invitation is true for us as well. How do we live in a way that people look at us and see God the Good Shepherd at work? It's not just for the important people like Peter and Tabitha, but actually the invitation was for all followers to live in a way that allowed God the Good Shepherd to be at work, shaped by the kind of things that the Good Shepherd tradition talks about. So, three questions. What voices compete for our attention? How do we take time to hear and respond to the voice of the Good Shepherd? And in what ways do others see God, the Good Shepherd, at work in us? Just spend a moment thinking about those three questions as we celebrate this Good Shepherd Sunday.